If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. As you study this text this morning, my prayer has been, and even now is, that our God will reveal himself. And that as our God reveals his splendor, his majesty, and all that he is, that we will respond to him with hearts that treasure him above all else. And so let's read in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is a remarkable text. Right here, what we see revealed to us is God's purpose. The center of our God's purpose. If you stop and think about this, God is God-centered. Our God is centered upon Himself. Everything that God does is to display his infinite worth and eternal perfections. So everything that God is doing, God's goal in all that he does is to be worshipped. God is zealous for his own glory and holiness and for his worth. God has to be God-centered. See, God recognizes, he values, and he upholds that which is of infinite worth. That which is of infinite beauty and glory and holiness and that which is eternal, which is himself. And so if God's supreme value was for anything other than his own glory, God would be committing idolatry. And so God created us to be God-centered. God created us in his image so that we can now exist to recognize value and treasure what is of infinite worth and beauty and glory, namely God. And so our purpose as humans is to worship him alone who is worthy of our affections, worthy of our loyalty, of our allegiance, worthy of our everything, our worship. And so God is zealous for his glory, and we have been created to be equally zealous for his glory. And anything short of that is idolatry. So we are called to value God above all 
See, because God deserves all the glory, and we now exist to give him, to reflect all of his glory. And in doing so, when we bend the knee and bend our hearts, and we fall on our faces before God in humility and in worship, and we say, you are my king, when we submit ourselves, what we find is joy. We don't find a taskmaster. We find a loving God who has created us for this purpose. And in His presence, there is nothing more than pleasure and joy in finding our purpose in what we were meant to do. And so we will experience maximum joy in life when Christ is the center of everything that we think and desire and say and do. And so he must be at the center of it all. So this morning, we're considering this profound truth. We're meditating on the center of it all. And the main idea that we just read from in Hebrews 10, and we'll look at it more carefully, but the primary truth here, it's on the screen, is that a disciple's life must be entirely centered on God. It must be. When we have our lives where God is somewhere in the equation but off to the side, we don't have joy. Because we're robbing God of his glory. We're displacing him and we're seeking to be our own sovereign, ruling ourselves. And when we do that, we mess it up. And so we must have God be the center of our lives where everything is permeated and saturated by God. So the main idea from here is that our lives must be entirely centered on God. Now, on a Friday morning, let's just be honest, that's not hard to do. Because everything that you're hearing is focused on God. Because we all gather, but we don't gather for each other primarily. That secondary, we gather for God. We're here for Him, to praise Him. And we do that by reading His Word, singing His Word preaching his word, hearing his word. Everything is centered around God and his word. And so on a Friday morning, being God-centered is quite natural. Everyone is God-centered on a Friday morning until you drive out of the parking lot. And someone cuts you off. Or you get in line at the, at the mall to get your food, and it takes forever. And all of a sudden, your thoughts are no longer God-centered. And so it's very easy on a Friday morning, but the goal is to have a God-centered Thought and life as a whole with desires, everything that we are to be centered on God. And so here's my question. What does that look like? Practically. In everyday life. Beyond the worship gathering. Daily life. What does it look like to truly be God-centered? This text reveals what it looks like. We'll look at this text. There are three imperatives, three commands. And you these commands. That's how we'll look at this text, three main points. We always want the main idea and the point to come from the Bible. Not your pastor's ideas. My ideas don't matter all that much. Yours don't either. No offense. We want God's ideas. And so the three imperatives, the commands in this text are the three points. And so... Centering your life on God, number one, is a call to draw near to God. Drawing near to God. So a life where we are actively drawing near to God is the beginning of a God-centered life. And you see it in verses 19 through 22. There is, again, one command in here. But before there's a command, there's two sins clauses. So first it says, since it's true. 
And so it says, since it's true that we have confidence, in verse 19, since we have confidence or boldness is a word there, more accurately, since we have this boldness to enter into the holy place, number two, it says, since it's true also that we have a great high priest, therefore do this. And it says what? Therefore, here's a command, let us draw near to God. So in light of who Jesus is and what he has done, our calling is to draw near to God. Now let's understand this clearly. God is holy and we are not. What right do we have to enter into the holy of holies? What right, what audacity for a human who is corrupted and flawed and sinful? Who do we think we are to enter into God's presence? His holy, majestic, completely indescribably glorious presence, who do we think we are, the text says, to boldly, with confidence, draw near to God? Left to ourselves, we can't. God's holiness would literally consume us. We cannot be in God's presence. And so what gives us this confidence, this boldness, to enter into the holy place and to draw near to God? It says in the text, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through the flesh, through his flesh. The blood of Jesus that has been shed for you and for me, with our sins having been forgiven because of Christ's work on the cross where he endured our guilt and our shame. Because of Christ's work on the cross, God's holiness will not consume us in his presence because it's been paid for on the cross. Instead, this is amazing. This is the work of God. This is miraculous. Instead, you know what God's holiness is for believers? God's holiness is a sense of awe and joy. And we marvel. And we sing about his holiness, and we revel in his holiness, and we delight in it, and we yearn to share in his holiness. And so it doesn't consume us, it, like it thrills us now, and it captivates us. And with the coming of Jesus, this is something new. It says the new living way. God has inaugurated something new. So everything in the old covenant, including the animal sacrifices that were done by priests, So the animals died, and the priests died as well, eventually, had to be replaced. All of the sacrificial system was pointing to something greater than itself that's being fulfilled by Jesus with the new covenant. So we no longer have dead animals up here. This is not an altar. This is a stage. And there's an altar in heaven. It's just a platform. Jesus died on the cross and was a once-for-all sacrifice. And so what you have is a new and living way. We don't sacrifice animals today. We don't have those rituals because it has all been fulfilled and paid for by Christ. This new and living way. We have one sacrifice, Jesus, one priest, Jesus, one way to the Father to have being God's presence, Jesus, he is alive and he intercedes for you and for me. And this is a new living way. And so since this is true, 
Draw near to God. This is a command. Christ has opened up the way. says he opens for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. The curtain that was in the temple, that was a separation that kept people out of the Holy of Holies. The high priest could enter in only once a year on Day of Atonement, known as Yom Kippur in Jewish, for, for, for those that speak Hebrew. As a matter of fact, next week, our Jewish friends are going to be celebrating this. Sadly, they don't know the truth that Jesus accomplished it. But the Day of Atonement was just a one day where the high priest could go in and offer sacrifice on behalf of all the people. But when Jesus died, that temple veil, that curtain was torn in two. And so it's open. And through Jesus, as read here, our great priest, we can enter in. We can now experience God's presence. He made a way. It would have been impossible otherwise. And so he is our priest who intercedes for us and mediates us being able to be in God's presence. And so since this profound reality, since this is true, therefore draw near to God. This is a command. Well, how do we do that? How do we draw near to God? Well, verse 22 tells us how that happens. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Praise God. We are called to draw near to God with with true hearts, genuine and sincere hearts. We have full assurance, full confidence that we are loved and accepted and that God approves of us. And so you, this is huge, hear me, you have God's approval. In an age where people are trying so hard to find approval in the eyes of men, and let me tell you, as someone, that this is just a natural reality as, as a pastor who is up front, and one of the biggest challenges is compromising to seek the approval of people. It is a made, major idol that I would, I would say every pastor on some level has to kill and actively say, no, I will not seek the approval of man. I will seek the approval of God. But the beauty is that we have it. We have God's approval right now. And so you don't have to be frantic in trying to get the approval of others because you already have the approval of him that really only matters. God approves of you. He loves you as you are with your flaws and your struggles and your temptations. He loves you. How do I know he loves you? We just talked about Christ being the sacrifice. Look to the cross. There's no greater display of love than Christ dying for you. His work on the cross has removed our guilt and our shame. And those of us that have come to Christ with repentance and trusting in him, it says that we have full assurance and we can approach him and experience his presence. No, we're not sinless. Let's just be clear on this. We're not going to attain sinless perfection on this side of heaven. But by having this privilege of being able to enter to God's presence, we can say this, that the penalty of sin in your life has been broken. You're not guilty anymore. The power of sin over you has also been broken. 
And yet, on this side of heaven and the resurrection, the presence of sin does continue. And so we just finished a series in Colossians 3 last week, a series called Becoming, and Becoming More Like Christ. So this is a daily ongoing reality. But due to God's spirit work in our lives, we've been made new. We have new desires. So at our core, we are no longer sin-centered or self-centered. We are now God-centered. We are different. So the points of this text with so much theology here, here is the bottom line of this first three verses in this paragraph, is that in order to be God-centered, we must draw near to him. You have God's approval. You have his love. There is no barrier. There is nothing hindering you from experiencing the joy and the pleasure of God's presence. There's nothing in the way. It's been removed. And so every area of our lives must be immersed in God. Every area. Your relationships, if you're married, but even if you're not, those that you're pursuing for marriage or even just your platonic relationships. Every relationship that you have, your co-workers, ought to be immersed in being God-centered. How you work, what you do, your work ethic, everything about how you work should be God-centered. How you care for your children, how you use your free time, your thoughts, your finances, every area of your life must be impacted by God, and it must revolve around Him. So ultimately, your motives and your goals. Let's get practical for a minute. Your motives must be centered on Christ. So it should look this way for all of us. We should approach our motives, what motivates us to make decisions, thinking this way, I want to value what God values where my decisions are more about what pleases God more than what pleases me. So my actions and even my reactions, because a lot of times how we react to people and circumstances. So all of my actions and even my reactions, all of my words and my thoughts and my desires should all be motivated by a passion to know and enjoy Jesus more. Everything. Everything. It's been said that men are like waffles and women are like spaghetti. Where for men, we have our compartments. We have our little boxes, our work box. And we have our private time box. And we have our religion box. And we have our whatever wife box. And we have all of our little boxes in our compartments. And very compartmentalized thinking, and each box does not touch each other. They're all very neatly organized boxes. But with women, they're not like waffles with boxes or like spaghetti. Everything touches everything. And so everything is related to everything. You talk to your husband, and, and, and you're mentioning a problem, and, and then he's like, what are you even talking about? That's not even related. But to her it is, somehow. I, it doesn't relate in my mind all the time because I'm not a woman. But here's the reality. For both men and women, we ought not have compartments. We ought not have boxes. There's one box, and his name is Jesus. And all of life is in that one box. Your life is 
Christ. So your motives and everything that you do ought to be fueled by how can I know and enjoy Jesus more in this relationship at work, in whatever situation it may be. But also your goals. I now, or it should be, we should all think to ourselves, I now want to live for the honor and glory of Jesus. I no longer live to decide or to live or to act according to my purpose or my own glory. We should all want Jesus to be known by everyone. We should all want Jesus to be worshipped and obeyed by all those around us. And so I may want other things. We, we may want to have other experiences. We may want to travel more. You may want to get married someday. You may want to have a better marriage if you're already married. Whatever it may be. We may have things that we desire or aspire to. But here's the thing. All of those other desires and motivations and goals, they all have to be oriented around pleasing King Jesus. So that we see every motive and every goal at its end is how can I know and enjoy Jesus more? Everything. He's at the center of it all. This is not casual or cultural Christianity. This is living a truly God-centered life. And so what must you do to maintain this kind of focus in daily life? We read it. What's the command? Draw near to God. This is the command here. God's Spirit will change your desires and transform your life only when you are consistently experiencing God's presence through His means of grace. What are these means of grace that allow us to experience God's presence and joy? Prayer. Reading His Word. Spending time meditating, thinking about His Word. Where will you read the Word calmly and quietly? And many of us, because of our Western background, we read the Bible like we read the newspaper. Actually, no one reads the newspaper. What is that? We read it online, right? And, and you scroll through, and what are you looking for on the news page? Headlines, right? Sure. All of us do it. Give me the headline. Just tell me what it's about. I'm busy. I have things to get to. I have to read more headlines. I have a lot going on in my life. We all think this way. And so we tend to read quickly for information. Please, for the sake of your soul, Do not ever read this marvelous book like a newspaper. Don't you dare read this for the headlines. You don't read the Bible for information. You read it for relationship. Really, you read this more like you would read a love letter. It's a lost art. But if you're married, I hope you've at some point received a love letter. And you read it slow, don't you? And you read it again. You take your time. And then a sentence just, oh, this is such an awesome sentence. So you read it again, don't you? 
because you're enjoying the relationship that you have with the person that wrote that to you. You read the Bible to experience the presence of God, and yes, there's information to be learned, but that is not primarily what it's about. It's about knowing and enjoying Jesus, worshiping him, and we do it as we experience his presence, and then that begins to impact all of life. And so you read the word slowly. Let the word sink in. And then you stop and you think about it. And you go over in your mind. And you meditate on it. You focus your thinking on it. And that leads you into your prayer time. This would change your life. This will change your life. This is the way God's spirit works. When we spend time doing this. God wants to empower you and help you to live a God-centered life. He wants you to have that joy and victory in life. He wants that for you. But this is the way he's revealed that he does it. It's much like if you said, I want to get in shape. I want to lift weights and, you know, look good for my wife, right? And then, so you, so you hire a personal trainer to coach you. And then he shows up and you're in, you're in the weight room and you're excited. And he says, all right, pick up those weights. And you're like, no, 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 I'm paying you. You pick up those weights. Well, the trainer can tell you what to do. He'll say, pick up these weights, as many reps. And, but you have to lift the weights yourself. If you don't lift the weights, you won't get stronger. You can look at them all day long. Won't help you. Pick them up. Repeatedly. And then, you'll get stronger. You can't outsource this. Sorry. You have to do it yourself. It's a relationship. You can't outsource intimacy with your wife or your husband. You have to do it. But think about this. How many couples do you think sit around and and want to contrive this and said, have you ever heard a couple say this, for example, oh, sweetheart, I think we need to converse about reciprocal self-disclosure. No, of course not. Couples that are in love do what naturally? They self-disclose. They share their lives with each other. They share everything, their hopes, their dreams, their struggles, their victories. They're sharing their lives, and it's natural out of the relationship. And what is the result? Intimacy. It's the result. And it's no different with God. It's a relationship. Do you feel far from God this morning? Repent. Repent of the sin that has kept you from him and kept you from being close to him. Run back to him. He will never turn away a repentant son or daughter. Never. Let us draw near to God with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let us draw near. That's where it begins. A truly God-centered life begins drawing near to God. Number two, centering your life on God is hope in God. This is a daily, truly hoping in God. And you see it in verse 23. Let us draw near. I'm sorry, that's verse 22. Verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast to this confession without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. 
memorize that verse. It'll do you much good. There's a second imperative, the second command in this paragraph. So in light of everything that Christ has done as our sacrifice, our priest, leads us into God's presence. We're called to draw near. But now here we're called to, to hold fast, to hope in God, to hold on tight to him. God is faithful. We do have hope. We must delight in his presence and his promises. When Christ really is your hope, he is the one reality that you have confidence in. Let's just be honest. Life can be unfair. Life can be very disappointing. We can feel betrayed, hurt, accused. Life can be really hard and sometimes very unforgiving. And so let's just call it what it is. Life can be hard. But here's the question. How do you respond? Not that it's going to be hard. We know that it is. The question is, how are we going to respond? Do we respond with fear or with anger or depression, anxiety, hopelessness? Look, hopelessness is a curse. It's a curse of trusting in man or anything else other than God and his perfect wisdom and his perfect timing. And so maybe today you're in a season of waiting. If you are, despair looks at the circumstances. Hope looks at the character of God. Where are you looking? I mean, where is your gaze fixed? Is it fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith? On this great priest who brings them to God's presence, who were sprinkled clean because work on the cross? Is it focused on him and his glory? Or is it really he is in the box but kind of off to the side? Or is he the center and filling all of it up? Where are we looking? Look, the bottom line is this when it comes to hope. We do not have a hopeless end. We don't. We have endless hope. That's what we have in Christ. And so God is using your circumstances, how hard they may be. He's using the circumstances to show you something, to show you that you need him. We all tend to forget this. We all get amnesia. We forget that we need God. We, we forget how desperate we are for his grace and his mercy. But because he loves us, he allows us to have difficult things in our life so that we remember and so that we would draw near to him and hope in him because that's what we exist for. So we need him. And sometimes we need the hard times to remind us of that reality and to cling to him. So how are we responding to difficulty? This is a daily, ongoing reality. In the same book of Hebrews, but earlier, chapter 4, verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Every day. Every day we draw near the throne of grace and we find the help that we need. And the more that you draw near to God, the more you're going to experience his presence and truly rest in his promises. And what, what are the promises? I could give you a lot, but I'll just give you one. I will never forsake you. I will never 
leave you. I'll be with you to the end of the age. No matter how scary it looks, we know that our God is with us. We hope in God. Number three, having a truly God-centered life is drawing near to Him daily, truly hoping in Him daily. And number three, it's investing in the people of God. So you invest in God's people. You see it in verse 24 and 25. Here's the last commandment, imperative. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The command here is let us, let us do what? Consider how to stir each other up to good works. And so we're told here is to stir up, to motivate to encourage each other to do good works. To, it says to not neglect meeting together, not neglect the gathering like we have this morning. And he says, continue to encourage one another. Look, people today talk about, oh, my faith in Jesus, it's, it's a very um, private matter. No, it's not. That's not in the Bible. It's not. Your faith in God is personal. Yes, you individually repented in Christ and you trusted him. So yes, you have a personal faith in God, but you do not have a private faith in God. It's quite public. And it's designed by God to be public. We need each other. We need it. We need one another. Not an option. This is a command. Let us do this. If you ever had the chance to go to the United States and go to California, if you go to Northern California, north of a town called San Francisco, there's a remarkable area called the Muir Woods. And in, this, in these woods, there's trees that are remarkably tall. I'm talking like 75 to 80 meters, so over 250 feet. Some of the tallest trees in the world. It's called the sequoia or the redwood trees. Most of these are really old, over a 1,000 years old, many even 1,500-year-old trees. Absolutely incredible if you go and just stand and just feel so small underneath these sequoia trees. But here's what's amazing. These trees that are, again, 80 meters tall, did you know that their roots are very shallow? It's just over one meter of roots that goes underground, so like about four feet is how far their roots go underground. It's pretty remarkable to think that the roots are so shallow, and yet these trees are so tall. You think, well, how is that possible? How, how do these giants not topple over? Well, sequoias only grow in groves, in groups together. What happens is sequoias, their roots that are pretty shallow but go underground, and they intermingle and lock with the roots of the other sequoias which keeps them all strong as they intermingle. And so these trees are actually holding each other up. No sequoia grows alone. No follower of Jesus grows alone either. No disciple experiences transformation alone. If you try, you're going against 
the way God has designed, and you will fail. Because you can't. You're going against your nature and God's prescribed plan for the church and for the world. See, the church is a people of God. We don't go to church. I know we use that language, but we don't go to church. The church is the people, the called out ones who gather together for the purpose of worshiping God. This is what the church is. It's the people to serve God and the world. But we serve God by serving the church and the world. And so by God's design, you cannot follow Jesus alone. Are you investing in the people of God? If you are trying to follow Jesus practically alone, yes, maybe you show up on a Friday, but no one really knows you, and you don't really know others. You're not being held accountable. You're not in Christ-centered community. If you are effectively following Jesus alone, you are basically much like an out-of-control, fast-moving train barreling down the tracks, and it's only a matter of time before you cause a wreck. You're going to wreck yourself. It's going to happen. Not, maybe not today, not tomorrow, but it'll happen. You can't. It goes against God's plan. That's why it says, encouraging one another to love and good works. This is not describing showing up on Friday mornings. It's far more than that. Are you truly investing in the people of this church? Do you really know other people? We must fight against the desire for independence. Discipleship is simply helping other people find and follow Jesus. Yes, we do have some children coming in. That's okay. We wanted our 10, 11-year-olds to experience communion with us. And so we're going to have communion in about five minutes. And so we do have children coming in. They'll find their seat. We want our children to learn about how to worship Jesus with their parents and have communion. And so this is good. So y'all just go ahead and come sit down. It's okay. At its core, discipleship really is helping someone find and then follow Jesus. That's what it is. And we need accountability. We need to be open with other people and speak truth and receive that truth. We need commitment. So everything that we do as a church is going to have, one, high accountability, and two, be highly relational. That's who we are as a church. And so if you're new, I want you to know up front, we don't have a lot of programs. We don't, and we're not going to. We don't have a lot of classes. We don't have a lot of events. We do have the occasional, we'll go to the picnic three or four times a year when the weather is good, and we do those kinds of things. But we don't want to have programs and events where you can just kind of show up and leave. Not going to happen. Because it's not going to help you. And so we're only going to have ministries that, again, one, have high accountability, and two, that are highly relational. That's how the Bible describes a church should be. So we're focused, like laser focused on this. How people find and follow Jesus. And that's why we emphasize church membership. That's why. If you look on the next slide here, you'll see that we actually have the information. On October 2nd, we're going to have a meeting from 4 to 8 p.m. in my home. I would love for you to come. If you're not a covenant member of this church, come join me in my home. We'll have dinner. We'll take care of your kids. 
and we'll talk about what the church is and what we believe and how we're organized and your role in accomplishing the mission that Jesus has given to us of glorifying God by making, developing disciples. And you can play a role in that right here. And so we have membership because we're saying one thing simply. We can't do it alone. We need accountability and we want to commit. And so if you're not a covenant member, you're missing out. You're missing out. And so I urge you to come. And if you do want to attend membership class, you can see on there the email, offislandabudabi.gmail.com. You can just email and just let us know who's coming, number of adults, number of kids, ages, so that we can plan for food and for child care. Email the church and let us know. And we'll be ready for you to talk about what it means to be a member of this faith family. We have home groups and discipleship groups. You've, you've seen the last few weeks. Today is the last day we'll do this. But since now summer is over and school has started, we've been emphasizing getting involved in a group. Home groups. Eight to 12 people that experience life transformation together as they focus on Jesus. That's a home group. If you're not in one, you're missing out. You need to be in a home group. Sign up. Give it to me or the, or the welcome to me at the back of the hall at the end of the service, and I'll call you this week, and we'll get you in a home group. Discipleship group, a little bit different. Three people, same gender. Meet once a week. Intentional, meaningful relationship around the word where you're going to multiply, and we can see a cultural discipleship that will take root. So if, you, if you're serious about this, check the box. I'll give you a call, and we'll talk this week. We have ways for you to serve on the back of that form. Serve the church and also serve the world outside. But here we're talking about serving the church. And so we, we need people to serve from setup, communications, guys that can sing. We need guys that can sing. We have a lot of ladies and we have one guy, a brother Ashley, leads a team. But he's like the one male vocal. If you're a guy you can sing, what are you doing? Talk to our brother Ashley and get engaged. Use your gifts. We need people in every area, kids. Oh, my goodness, it's always me in the kids' area. If you're not serving, not experiencing the joy of worshiping Jesus as you serve him. In regards to home groups, just briefly, we even have a mom's group that meets on Tuesday mornings. If you're a stay-at-home mom, we'd love to have you join our Tuesday morning mom's group. Have community, Christ-centered, life-changing community. This is who we are because that's what God's word reveals. We're talking about a rhythm of life. We want to have a rhythm of following Jesus, that it begins with daily drawing near to him, clinging to him, hoping when it's hard, and doing it together as we invest in the people of God. And you know what the result is? You know what happens when, when we're living like this? People who don't know him will be drawn to him because they will see that there's a difference. May we be God-centered for his glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we worship you today. You are indescribable. You are so beautiful, glorious. We're in awe that we would be your people. Thank you for the privilege of being able to center our lives around you. Help us to be a church that is truly centered on you and your purposes. Help us. We need you. Thank you for hearing us. Thank you for you.
We praise you. We worship you alone, for you are worthy. And we pray in the name of our love, Jesus. Amen.